Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to The Debrief. This is our debrief after our episode with Olaf Carlson. We, uh, David, I've been waiting to talk to him for a long time. Um, he was actually one of the first people I started listening to and got me really interested in the space in like 2016, 2017, when I was like deep diving again uh, in, in crypto and talking about Ethereum, talking about the potential for the space, like really illustrating what crypto was in uh, terms that were easily digestible and easy to understand. So I... Um, really excited to just pick his brain on a lot of topics. And like I said in the intro, I feel like I got all of the questions in that uh, that at least I wanted to, which was just, okay, how do you think about the space now? Like, so somebody who's been in crypto for as long as he has, what's his lens on some of the more current conversations? And how does he extrapolate that forward into the future? One of my takeaways was uh, super interesting is, he thinks about crypto in a much different way in some respects than I think of crypto, at least how it'll play out. Right. Like a lot of united values and sort of the reason why we're here, but particularly this conversation around like many layer ones versus some power law winner layer ones that, um, you know, optimize for decentralization. Uh, that was a big point of difference. Um, what were your like general thoughts? Do you want to start there? Or do you want to talk about something different for, for the Olaf conversation? Uh, yeah, I definitely want to talk about how his DAO model at scale conversation, because there's a lot to unpack there. But I think, yeah, definitely the, the thing that comes to mind is like literally the name of his fund, Polychain. Can, this is the, the, this is the bajillion dollar question. Can the industry, how many layer ones can the crypto industry support? How many layer ones does the world demand for? Is there enough demand for many, many, many different layer ones? And I think that's probably where we differ from Olaf the most, where he's literally named his fund Polychain, implying that there's going to be more layer ones than you can count. Can I, can I like, so can I maybe try and attempt at sort of reiterating what his perspective is? Yeah. And you correct me. Sure. I, his, his perspective is like, it's very hard to tell where value will accrue in crypto, but it's not like fat protocol thesis right. where it include where it uh, accrues the crypto money layer at the very bottom and a few chains that are decentralized enough. His idea was that it could accrue on you know the monetary meme level through something like a Bitcoin. He recognizes that as an avenue. He recognizes that it's also an avenue for utility, smart contract utility platforms to accrue value, but he thinks that could migrate to wherever the apps reside. So the apps could reside on Ethereum as they have at first, but if another chain starts to eat away at that, then that chain just slurps up all of the utility value and erodes Ethereum's market share in, in favor of that other chain. Even a layer two, which maybe at first could be somewhat symbiotic to Ethereum, he thinks that a la layer twos will develop their own ecosystem and also play in this game. Uh, he also thinks bridges could do this as well. So bridges could not only become just like transports of uh, value from one chain to another, but they could actually be sort of the application platform layer themselves. So he's like, I don't know for sure where value is going to accrue, but he seemed deeply open to the possibility that they would accrue across many different chains, possibly many different layer twos, and also many different bridges, and they would all fight for this value accrual and uh, with no real clear winners here, mm -hmm. which is um, a very different perspective than I think the perspective uh, we generally articulate on Bankless. But is that 
Is that your understanding of what, what he said? Yeah, yeah. And I'll add that when we asked him, we kind of asked him to elaborate on like, you know, how, do, how does value accrual? Uh, and he kind of just said like, yo, like we don't know. That's a science that we have not uncovered yet. Basically, all we know is that like usage and users and TVL of blockchains is bullish for the asset, right? Like the more attention there is and the more usage there is on a blockchain, the more valuable the asset is. And I kind of consider that a cop-out answer as in like, okay, why does usage of a blockchain make the asset go up? And his answer is, we don't know. Like it's complicated. Like can't, can't, can't really be known. It's a science that we'll figure out over time. And, uh, and but he, he generally said utility. Yeah, utility, right. I think we do know. I think there's strong evidence to make very strong claims about the nature of the utility of a blockchain and its relationship with the asset. And we don't need to hand wave it away. It's just like, oh, it's just like, you know, when you use it, it becomes more valuable, of course. There are direct paths for value accrual that is very, very clear in Ethereum and much less clear everywhere else. Granted, uh, like, our biggest complaints about like the alternative layer ones is our could in theory be, be temporary. Like it's, it's really in like the utility of Solana is great. The, the utility of Avalanche is great. That utility is not bridged into those respective layer one tokens. And so our, our critique of these alternative layer ones and like of, of Olaf's polychain thesis is that, you know, you need an actual formal relationship between the utility of a blockchain and the value of the asset. And Avalanche and Solana don't have that. And so while these, the usefulness of those blockchains could be off the charts, it doesn't necessarily make the actual asset investable. One way we could be wrong about that is like, well, you know, that could have been true. That kind of was true about Ethereum in its early days, and they can just fix that later. And then they, right. have, the, they have the ammo to do that. So like utility first, fix the uh, economics later. I think we would say that like, well, if you fix the economics, you start to burn some of the use cases that you established your blockchain on in the first place. Um, but Which is like low transaction fee. Exactly. And high right. But more or less, I think our, our difference with Olaf is that like, Olaf says, we don't know how to value these things. They just go up by association of utility. And our, our idea is like, we do know how to value these things. Uh, and we've established metrics and, and fundamentals yeah, to do that. Yeah, and look, to give Olaf even more credit, I, I actually think he would present a stronger case of what you just said, which is basically like, hey, um, you're making this argument now, <laughs> but like, if you looked at Ethereum when it was two years in or three years in, right. how much blockchain revenue did it generate? Right. Like very little. And how about uh, you seem worried about its you know inflationary supply schedule? And that looked relatively weak in a pre-EIP-1559 world, in a pre-kind of when is staking going to happen world. And uh, what has been the trajectory and the tendency? Well, the, the trajectory has been the community of ETH holders is incented to harden that monetary policy and deliver value back to ETH holders. So, of course, that's the direction that the Ethereum roadmap um, took. And so he's probably saying, well, just extrapolate that. If you get utility, then the economics will fall into place because all of the stakeholders of the chain are incented to um, essentially create the most favorable economics for, for them as holders. So I think that's where, that's where Olaf would uh, push back. He'd say like, maybe, yeah, sure, maybe we don't know what value accrual is today, right. but like the key is you get utility and then you add the value accrual later. It's, like, it's kind of like the Facebook play, right? It's like the hardest thing was for Facebook to build a social network. And mm -hmm. people were saying for many years that, Facebook would never have a profitable um, business model engine. Well, then they just layered ads on top of it. 
and it became mega profitable. Right. And like in an instant, they turned from like a loss leading VC money burner to like a massive cash cow. Right. And Google did the same. Like you just have to turn the the, the model on. That's probably a stronger uh, you know form of the case that he's making here. Which goes back to my my first question: How many layer one assets can the world support? Hmm. hmm. And so, like, when all of these things start to compete on that same thing, which is literally the price of their token, it ever, th this is why Bitcoiners have always gotten this right. The game is money. Are you money? Are, do you have the asset with the most utility, with the most monetary premium? Because if you have, if you start to win the monetary premium fight, like you win the monetary premium fight in the sense that all the applications want your collateral inside of, inside of, inside of their apps, right? Like, Ether on Solana is demanded inside of Solana DeFi. Like that's a point mm -hmm. for Ethereum and its monetary premium and a knock on Solana and its monetary premium, right? And so like- the, Same with tokenized Bitcoin exactly, on Ether, yeah. on Ethereum. Uh, and yeah, exactly, exactly right. And so like, there's not like, while we can make as many layer one blockchains as we want, there's only so much pre monetary premium in the world to fight for and monetary premium is the game. And I do believe that it's really just one winner that wins the monetary premium fight. Ether has very strong monetary premium, but not as strong as Bitcoins. And we're, we're, we, as Ethereum holders, we want that monetary premium for ourselves and we want it for less other chains. This is why the industry is so tribal is there's only so much monetary premium to go around and it's going to be probably one dominant winner that sucks up all the other monetary premium and every other layer one asset is more like a utility token to just do the things on that blockchain. And there's not, I think, there's not a lot of upside there. I think his take might be like, that's that, that it's an immaterial distinction, right? Like which asset has monetary premium, which don't. It's all kind of a spectrum sure. of moneyness and store of value the asset and so it's almost meaningless to talk about to to be like these assets are money this is very much what bitcoin or maximalists do by the way they say only this thing can be money and you ask them why like what are the characteristics of money and they end up listing off all the characteristics of bitcoin you're like wait right, what right, right, yeah. but like like the the more i think nuanced recognition is that all assets have some sort of you know, there's somewhere on the spectrum of moneyness being either like higher monetary premium or low monetary. Like people put their value in like um, stocks, for instance, right? There's some very small amount of moneyness in a stock because there's things you could do with it. And so I think what he might argue is, well, look, David and Ryan, like, yes, Bitcoin and Ether right now have higher moneyness than these other assets, but there's somewhere on the spectrum and they could move left of the spectrum to become more and more money in the future, particularly as they're used in their economies, just the way like Ether and Ethereum have. Mm -hmm. And so don't be so quick to call a right. certain category of assets money and like dismiss another category of assets as non-money because it's all kind of the same thing. Right. And then this is the conversation of what is the culture of the ecosystem? Do they have a culture of prioritizing their layer one asset as money? And then also, uh, like the, one of the problems that all these alternative layer ones uh, get themselves baked into the corner that they back themselves into is they boast low fees. And in order to be more money, you need more fees because that makes the mm. asset harder. So they're advertising their low fee blockchain optimizing for low fee use cases. And if they want to become money, they're gonna have to raise the fees, which invalidates so many of the use cases that they've attracted in their bootstrapping phase. So that's like the catch 22 that is in my mind, the big differentiator between Ethereum and these alternative layer ones. 
Yeah, that's the point I was uh, trying to ask him about when I asked that question of like, okay, what what do you make of this? A world where you have the vast majority of blockchain revenue going to uh, Ethereum. And these other chains are issuing a lot of their native tokens. So they have these issuance costs associated with um, protecting and securing their chain, high issuance costs. Um, but they don't have very much in the way of, of revenue. So some of these chains like a Solana, for instance, is like over 99% uh, um, losing in terms of its expenses, its issuance costs outweigh its um, its blockchain revenue, blockchain uh, subsidy. And, and you know, that that's why I didn't really actually understand his answer here because he, he went back to like, well, a lot of the issuance actually goes to to miners. And while that's true in proof of work, of course, in a post-merge Ethereum proof of stake and all of the other chains that are also proof of stake, you're doing sort of an apples to apples. And that issuance, that revenue does actually go to um, holders of the asset and stakers of the asset rather than to miners to get sold to pay for energy and, and ASIC equipment, right? And so, I don't know, he, I, I don't think he looks at chains uh, like on, on that basis at all. I don't think he's really like looking at it f the way we might look at it, which is like, uh, what do blockchains do? Blockchains sell blocks, right? And so uh, how, how many blocks are they selling? Try to forecast the demand for those blocks in the future. And you get sort of some basal level of what the asset should be valued based on. And then you can add monetary premium on top of that. But like none of these other chains have a, a basal level of value that are material because they are like bleeding. They're literally bleeding. And then if you say, well, that's true now, it was also true for Ethereum, but like it, it may not be true in the in the future. Uh, then fees have to rise on these alternative chains, mm -hmm. and if fees rise, then why are you on these chains rather than Ethereum in the first place, right? So that that that's kind of the. I felt like we were kind of talking past one another mm -hmm. because we're looking at this through a different lens right. uh, on the space entirely, and I guess I I, I kind of leave my leave the podcast sort of scratch my head and be like, well, am I looking at this in the right way? Is he looking at this in the right way? Like which of one of us is right. One of us is wrong. I don't know if this is just a difference of time horizons or if this is a fundamental difference where like one thesis is correct right. and the other is not, or one thesis is more correct than the other. What do you think? Yeah. You know, the, the pattern that I've, I'm noticing is that, uh, Olaf has, is now in a, he's now a VC. He you know, used to be early Bitcoiner then was an early Ethereum, then a Coinbase employee, but now he's a, he's the CEO of Polychain Capital. And the common denominator that I'm seeing with all the VCs out there is they all believe in the multi-layer one blockchain thesis, the Polychain thesis, the multi-layer multi one world. And like that makes sense as to VCs would believe that because a multi-layer one world is a world in, in which there is a ton of surface area for VCs to make investments in. This is a VC. Every three years, you get a new crop. Every single, every, yeah, <laughs> you, 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 you get something new to invest in, right? And so like, I think VCs are really super responsible for the current state of the crypto industry more than what would have happened m more organically because VCs are incentivized to create the alt layer one ecosystem. Has many like alt layer ones are just fantastic VC Not candy. just VCs, like traders, hedge funds, mm -hmm. right? The three hours capitals of the world. Right. You can rotate in one alt one yeah. and then rotate out. Yeah. And so this is, this is a VC playground. The more alt layer ones there are, the more things there are to invest in, 
Uh, and I, th I think to some degree, like the alt layer one landscape is, a, is and we, we know this, like as you go down the more, re more recent alt layer ones, you go from Bitcoin, which raised zero, zero dollars. You go, you go to Ethereum, which raised $10 million from zero VCs. And then you have the Solanas, the Avalanche, the Terras, which all took VC investment very, very early. And now we're, we're spending like, you got Celestia, every, everything is VC investment these days. Uh, and so like, VCs, the existence of VCs is promoting this alt layer one ecosystem because it's perfect candy for them. Yeah, I guess that, you know, I, I do think that is a countervailing force here, but I think what Olaf again would say is be like, um, yeah, but I'm just here to um, see all the experiments play out, sure. right? And Bitcoin is one version of the experiment, Ethereum is another, but there are all of these like other spaces for experimentation and trade-offs. And so... Yeah, all of these other chains should exist because they are testing these various trade-offs and seeing how the experiments you know play out. And he would also probably point to the fact that like over the past five years, it's been a willing a winning strategy from an investment perspective to be polychain. Right. There's like a ton of chains have died, right? Yeah. But like if you invest in all the chains that died, but you also invested in like seed stage for Solana and Near. And like uh, when it was only accredited investor for like Luna, the very early stages of the, um, the Terra chain, for for example, you did quite well, way better than just holding like uh, a smaller set of layer one assets, obviously. So he'd be like, okay, cool, David, but like the market and bankless, me too, because I'd probably be on like your side of the argument, but like the market has proved otherwise. See you later. Right. <laughs> like you're wrong. Right. How do you contend with that? I mean, this the crypto is a multi generational long time frame. Before I like, I think it's going to be thirty to fifty years before crypto finally settles into its long term state, and maybe it actually never does. And so, like, yeah, I think I think VCs are going to have like a golden age, or currently in their golden age. But like, things consolidate. Like, I don't think there's that many room for that many layer ones. Uh, no, I think there's going to be a handful of layer ones, um, and so. VCs won this round, but did not win the roar, war. But then there's some bridges, right? There's bridges which could start to accrue value. What do you think of this idea that L2s will kind of become their own chains, their own ecosystems, and their own app layers, and start to compete against L1s? Like, he, he, hit, I think his framing is like, I don't really see a long term distinction between an L1 and an L2. Right. All I see, he said this, all I see are chains. All I see is mesh network and change. Change bridges can't really tell the difference. Where's your asset? Doesn't really matter. The UI layer conf uh, obfuscates everything, takes care of that for you. Yep. The, and the, then and then and then economics like the security of an asset if you port from like across one bridge to another, does that really matter? No, because in his world, uh, the market will like price in the security of the asset, and so we'll have a good understanding of like the risk of an asset on a chain versus the risk of an asset on another chain. What do you think of this? No distinction between L1s and L2s, just they're all chains because they're all playing the same competitive game, which is to compete for supremacy here. If there's, if there's no distinction between these things, why does economic security even matter? Economic security is similar to monetary premium. I would say very, very synonymous with it. And along with monetary premium comes network effects of... Layer twos. Layer twos want to be hooked into the most economically secure layer one. 
And it's just so much more simple to reason about things when like, we don't have to discount the value of a non-native asset on a different blockchain. And like, we, it's, no, it just makes no sense, Ryan. Do you it makes know, no do you sense. Know, but do you know? Do you, do you think that's one of those things where, like, um, most of the time, security doesn't really matter? The only time security matters is when you're attacked. It's kind security of a little bit like to prevent uh, the attacks. Sure, but it's a long tail type of game, right? It's like a, um, it's just like a um, black swan type game. It's kind of like it's kind of like a little bit like um, reminds me of economic security of nation states, like you know Germany recently, spending nothing as a percentage of GDP. Yeah on national security. Basically nothing for a very long time, right? Like they have the post-World War II sort of thing, and then they have like kind of NATO. And then they're like, oh shit, Russia just invaded Ukraine. Boom, overnight, 2% of GDP on spending on security to be ready for that. It's like, you don't need security until you're attacked. You don't need uh, this defense until this like kind of long tail type of black swan event happens and then you really need it and you find out who actually has the security and who actually doesn't you think it's one of those things so you can kind of coast without security for a very long time yeah but they germany gets security from being under the umbrella of the eu and also from just strong ties with the united states and they use the dollar for international trade which is borrowing against the security of the united states military and so, like, yeah, if Russia invaded Germany, they don't need to spend on defense because, like, the United States... So they're will, kind of free, free riding in yeah, a way? Well, there are a layer two roll-up on the empire of the United States. Yeah. Like, not, so somebody not has directly. To have the, security? The, the, the metaphors break down. But, yeah, the security comes from somewhere. And, like, the Germany and... Like, this is, this is what Donald Trump was saying. It's like, you know, the, Europe you needs to pay for its own defense or pay us. Right. And so that is like, yeah, like Germany was riding on. It's like a it's like a side chain getting free security from Ethereum. Like it's, it's the same thing. I guess um, maybe why not do that? Yeah. Like it's 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 a less expensive way to to sort of get your security. If, right? if, he's, if, if Olaf is thinking there's just going to be so many layer ones and so many layer twos and so many bridges and there's going to be a mesh network and you don't really know where you even exist in this mesh network of blockchains. <sighs> I see that world, but it's it's so much easier to build a structurally sound and secure mesh network of chains when it's all hooked into the same center of security. So bridges between rollups, between layer twos, it's going to be fundamentally more secure. And all these layer twos are going to be have much more security premium because they are all hooked into the same shared security. And that shared security is going to have network effects. As rollups settle on Ethereum, more rollups will settle on Ethereum, adding to the security of the Ethereum, adding to the security of rollups. And it's just way easier, fundamentally, technically, objectively, to bridge between one layer two that settles to the same layer one as another layer two. That will never be not true. So he didn't change your mind? No. No, he did not. And how do you explain the market disagreement? VCs, Ryan. It's goddamn VCs. (laughs) Is it short-term versus long-term? Yes, exactly right. I mean, if this plays out over decades, then it's going to take a very long time to uh, learn whether you are right or not. And like ultimately, I bet the VCs will like have made a lot of money. And by VCs, we're not saying like all VCs, but it's just kind of this institutional pool of capital, VCs, traders, and such that play this alt layer one hopping game that they seem to play every single crypto cycle um anyway it's uh, it's caused me to think think this will be here with decades i'm doing a podcast for decades god 
<laughs> Old men and beards. Yeah, uh, at some at some point, you know, we got to pass this to another generation, but maybe after decades, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Dow models at scale. What was what was yes. cool about that conversation? Yeah. So his this is the take that I really really liked is that instead of like a you know a Dow with a Discord and everyone in Discord just like you know doing Dow stuff, it's going to be a centralized LLC, many centralized LLCs all asking for grants of the native token of DAOs. Like that is the future of the model. And that is the model that maker DAO. I was wait, waiting, I asked him like, okay, which DAO is doing this? Waiting for him to say the answer that I was expecting to, which is the original on-chain DeFi DAO that he invested in in the first place, which was MakerDAO. MakerDAO is the only model that has this. It used to be the centralized foundation, then they then they killed the foundation, and rather than there being one central MakerDAO, there are many, many, many sub-DAOs. There are the Oracle DAO for MakerDAO. There is the growth and marketing DAO for MakerDAO. There's many, many sub-DAOs. Rather than one central DAO of MakerDAO, there's many sub-DAOs, and they all petition for MKR grants. And so they make their case to the meta-DAO of MKR governance, fund us with this amount of MKR because we're going to do this for the DAO. So centralized LLC, centralized uh, organizations working for the protocol. I think that was a super hot take, and the only DAO that's doing that is MakerDAO. It's kind of like your nodes on a network, yeah. right? It's like... Um all of these edge nodes are kind of making the the decisions, but they're like petitioning back to kind of the, I guess the, the master node right. to distribute funds. The brain, the but, master brain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely one model for DAOs for sure. I, um, I still struggle with the amount of like human decisions that are required in that sort of model. Right. right? Like still my perfect world of a, of a DAO is like something that's super ungovernance and just code. Yeah. Just all code. Like, you know, that's my favorite though. DAO. That's a protocol. I guess so. Um, do you know my favorite DAO in Ethereum? Probably. Thankless DAO. Um, besides Ethereum. <laughs> sure. But also, uh, Curve. Oh, yeah, sure. Curve is super cool, man. Yes, it's just like, cool. just lets the market kind of dictate where the capital is allocated. Right. And what is the market? Well, that's composed of humans that are doing like market profitable, making market market profitable sort of decisions so it can kind of run as a robot it doesn't have to ne like need all of these the squishy governance proposals and um all of the the human interaction required to coordinate you know such a beast um that's super cool to me but i guess that doesn't work for everything does it right. it only works for very specific yeah. niche kind of use cases and yeah to your point that's where that's where there's a transformation from an app to like a protocol, right? right? Like Curve has made that transformation from app to protocol. Totally. I think fa fairly effectively. Yeah, and Curve is in the privileged position where it can actually do that. I think most DAOs don't have that ability to, to actually do that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of squishy human decisions that need to be made. Yeah, totally. Um, like the, we all, we joke in the DAO world, like, oh, we're gonna just like put this decision of like, should I tie my shoes right now up to Snapchat, <laughs> Snapchat voting? We're like, and, and so in, in Olaf's model where DAOs just petition the, the meta DAO, the big DAO for capital, and that's the only that's the only thing that a DAO does is it says, let's put capital here. And that's the only decision making. It's not about like what is the branding or approving whatever. Or like, what are we going to have for lunch? Like, no, it's like this organization gets this much capital. They're going to go do something. We're going to see what they do. They're going to come back and ask for capital again later. And we're going to vet them on their merits. Like that makes so much sense. It ruins, it kills off voter fatigue, makes things very lean and simple. You just vote on what central ent centralized entity should we give money towards and how are they going to help the DAO? Yeah. Yeah. 
I it's still like a lot of human decisions, but I get it's better that it's better than like voting on uh what you eat for breakfast or how to tie like when to tie your shoe and that sort of thing. Um, what else, man? Uh, he thinks basically everything when we got to that lightning round, everything about crypto is still underrated. <laughs> and what's funny is he's been right like very much about crypto being underrated the entire time, and it's kind of grown faster than uh, probably his his early dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of fun. Um, Olaf's a very like he's done very well. I don't know how wealthy Olaf Carlson Wee is, but like, I mean, there's you know he's got a nice place yeah. in in Hollywood somewhere. Um, like guy's, he's doing yeah. Guy has uh, definitely played one of the, the crypto markets. Got in early and then played the crypto markets the best. Yeah, played it. Co- played Coinbase it very well. equity, early Bitcoin, Ethereum presale, Coinbase equity. Like CEO of early Polychain, maker, early like, DeFi, early on so many of these yeah. like first crypto hedge funds. Like he's got a lot of firsts. Yeah. Um, so look, it does. I think we should definitely pay attention to to what he's saying um, because maybe we're wrong, David, uh, or maybe or maybe Ryan is our turn to be right. <laughs> <laughs> Pass we'll the see. Torch, Bankless Olaf. listeners can decide. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything else you want to talk about on this? Nope, I think that was it. Guys, thanks for hanging with us. This has been The Debrief. Cheers.